one thing was dropping dollar bills off of the, the big hotel over there, uh, and it caused gridlock in Huntsville. And the police department said, if you ever do that again, we're never going to let you do a remote or a promotion. Uh, but, it, but it was in the front page of the paper, you know, WAAY radio causes gridlock in Huntsville. That's what he said, you know, it doesn't matter what you say, just give me the promotion and spell my name right. Welcome to This Alabama Life. My name is Don Keith. I am your host and uh, filmmaker, uh, author, broadcaster. I still don't know what I want to do when I grow up. My co-host, Andrea Tice. Andrea, great to see you. It's good to be here. Good to talk to you. We're, we're going to dive into our uh, an area that we both have some familiarity with. I, th- this is a fascinating uh, person that we're going to be talking with today. Uh, M.D. Smith. Um uh, when we first started this podcast, we talked about we're telling stories, we're telling positive and uplifting stories about uh, remarkable people who have some association with the state of Alabama, and uh, MD qualifies in a, a lot of ways here. And we also said that we would concentrate on just pure old-fashioned storytelling. And as it turns out, MD is a good old-fashioned storyteller in so many ways. Uh, I'm going to start by saying some things that may not make a lot of sense to you, how it all ties in together, but the history of broadcasting and the state of Alabama history are so intertwined, a lot of people are not aware that one of the first radio stations, radio broadcasting stations in the country, fired up right here in Alabama. Uh, And it was very successful. It was located in Auburn, the Auburn-Opelika area, when it first went on the air. And one of the reasons it was successful was because it was owned and operated by Alabama Power Company. Uh, Its original call sign was WAPI for Alabama Polytechnic Institute, which is Auburn University's uh, former name. It uh, later moved to Birmingham and became a very successful station here with those call signs. That that call sign still exists today. It does. does. Uh, Not on the television station, which was WAPI-TV for a lot of years, but when it was bought by the Times Mirror folks, it changed to WVTM, and that call sign remains. But M.D. Smith and his family, very entrepreneurial, very creative group of folks, all the way back to the original M.D. Smith. Uh, M.D., they've not only been involved in creative pursuits, but in business and very successful in business. M.D.'s, I guess, great-grandfather was a, uh, an evangelist, uh, a preacher, and also an entrepreneur. And in the Rome, Georgia area, he would travel around the southeast and do uh, revival meetings. And he would always work out of a tent, as a lot of the evangelists did in those days. But he couldn't find a good tent, so he started making his own tents. And there was another company that they fired up, and eventually that uh, company moved to Birmingham as Birmingham Tent and Awning Company. And along the way, they saw something a lot of people didn't, and that was the possibility of being successful in the broadcasting business. And they started one of the very first radio stations in Birmingham, not WAPI, but WBRC, the call letters that still exist there. And they also dabbled in uh, FM radio, uh, AM radio, and the family along, uh, over the years owned quite a few radio stations around the, the state and in other states. Uh, MD grew up in Birmingham. He... Uh, went to Indian Springs School, graduated there, and he decided when he graduated to actually become an MD. Uh, He went to the University of Virginia in the pre-med program, but along the way, the lure of broadcasting caught his attention, 
and uh, he moved back to Birmingham, and from there it's uh, becomes a very interesting story. And he he and his family have been so intertwined in the media in this area. We thought you would like to hear some of those stories. Yes, it was really a wonderful t- uh, opportunity for me to go up there and meet him. I don't have the history that you have of Birmingham, Alabama, but it, uh, I enjoyed hearing about how radio and television was first introduced to this area and how it took part in a lot of people's lives because that's what the emerging technology of that time did, just like we've all been affected by the latest emerging technology of iPhone, smartphones, and and social media. This is what was happening in Birmingham back in the early 1900s, 1920s, 1930s, and onward. And so it was really great to hear of someone who was in basically in the forefront, and his family was in the forefront of, of bringing that to the people of Alabama and Birmingham. And how they basically changed with the times, they adapted, they became very flexible in technology they learned a lot but they also kept the creative side along the way they continued to be storytellers whether it was telling ghost stories around a campfire to a bunch of boy scouts or putting together a news operation for television or becoming a uh, a published writer yes md's done all those things Uh, just a, a wide range of uh efforts in in this area so yes i was able to go up to huntsville earlier this week and sit down and talk with MD and in his office, he's still going to the office every day. Um, He's an active person in his 80s and uh, it was very impressive. The one thing that he said to me before I came up, Don, that you'll appreciate because he's clearly the consummate person still thinking about TV video is he told me, he said, you know, I had a little surgery on my eyelid and um, I don't know if you want that in the picture, you know, are you sure you want to do this now? And I said, well, look, we'll we'll change the angle and we'll, we'll, we'll accommodate as long as you're not uncomfortable and are able to, to, to talk with me. So he said, all right, so there you go. We, we set the camera up and he was very conscious of that because he's been decades in television and uh, you won't be able to tell at all. So anyways, we're going to go into a video next of just MD kind of tracing his history with his family. The MD Smith um, senior um, started a tent operation and, uh, in, in Rome, Georgia, and it was very successful building circus tents and, and tents for uh, uh, gospels, you know, shows. And uh, he had two, two sons, um, M.D. Smith uh, Jr. and another son whose name I forget. He stayed in Rome as the business expanded, and then they expanded the operation in Birmingham, and that's how M.D. Smith Jr. came here. And then uh, as my father came along as a young boy, he went into the business of tent making. So he was doing that. Uh, and then uh, uh, M.D. Smith decided that he wanted to try this little new broadcasting thing. And this uh, J.C. Bell had a little station uh, that was going to uh, become BRC. That stood for Bell Radio Corporation. And so he bought a half interest in J.C. Bell's little 500 watt station running out of his back room of his house <laughs> and that's how he got into it now uh, it became quite successful and they began making money off of it now he's still in the tent business he's just doing this part-time but uh, it, it just developed what it was something he was very seriously having to put time in because it was paying off he died of blood poisoning but way before penicillin uh, something in the arm and my grandmother then took over so my father ran the tent place, and she was radio, and she they were in an office in downtown Birmingham. 
And uh, you just almost couldn't help radio. It was blossoming just like any new business, like the Internet did when it came on the scene. Right. And so, uh, you know, it grew. Uh, sponsors grew. There was the, the networks, you know, and all the money that they brought with their sponsored shows. And then uh, after uh, World War II, where my father had converted the tent factory into army goods, making parachutes and bandoliers, uh, when that was over, he just decided he didn't want to really keep in the tent business. And by then, my grandmother offered him to join her in the radio, so he did. Um, now, they, was it your grandmother who was the one who would broadcast from the living room or the back room of the house uh, that I was reading? No, that was, that was, that was actually Mrs. Bell. Oh, um, okay. Uh, and she didn't die too many years ago. She lived to be nearly 100. Wow. Uh, she'd been out of the business ever since because it wasn't long after that my grandmother, Eloise Smith, Hannah, she'd married a doctor, Hannah, who also had died. He was a, a medical doctor, and he didn't live that long. But even when she was married to him, she was working at the radio station because she was the general manager okay. of the downtown station. Um, but my father joined, and, and the broadcasting kind of got in his blood at that mm -hmm. point. Mm -hmm. He put on the first FM station, WBRC-FM, on the mountain. They built that from scratch, a 250-foot tower. It, it did had so few listeners, it, it wasn't a very successful thing, even though you could hear it all the way to Florida, Tampa, Florida. One night he did take a, uh, a radio receiver and, and show us how well it covered. It went off the air, and then they built the television station, uh, on the same tower, the same 250-foot tower, they just put a TV antenna instead, and in the building that was the FM, they put the first TV studio. And that's how I got started in 1948, I believe, was the, the year that the TV went on the air. And it's still up on that hill, right? It sure that, is. That's the, that's the location mm -hmm. in the 40s where yeah. it was located? Behind it is the original building. In front of the humongous facade, that was something that Store Broadcasting built when they bought it from my grandmother in 1953. They put on that two-story mansion-type front and all the offices in a much larger studio. But the original FM station made out of concrete blocks and cement is behind up there. That's the transmitter area now. Okay, okay. All right. So your family, you know, caught the radio bug. It really is a radio bug for people, mm -hmm. you know, you either love it or hate it or have no interest, but your father got into it and then continued on in radio, and at some point there was a branch off into television. Tell us about that. Well, uh, you're talking about the, the, the Channel 6 branch off or our personal family branch? Well, your family branch off, Well, yeah. see, she sold the operation in 1953 to store broadcasting. He stayed on as operations manager, okay. but he always wanted it to be a family business, and now he's just an employee. So he started by building the, uh, the first AM station that our, our personal family would own in Calera, Alabama, okay. WBYE in Calera. It's still on the air today. The same little building is still there. I've driven by in the last couple of years. BYE, that's yeah, right. WBYE, okay. your best buy by far is buy. Um, he was pattering the stations uh, top 40 after the Bartell format and WYDE in Birmingham. Uh -huh. That was the first with that format that just took over the world. Top 40 just took over everything in the late 50s. It just was the way to go. An AM station that played that, because that was the main station to listen to, FM was around, but hardly anybody had receivers to hear FM. You couldn't hear them in your car. You could, uh, mm -hmm. Very few could hear it at home. So that's why it grew so fast. And then he bought a station in Tullahoma, Tennessee. That was the second one, and made it top four, and it became number one in Tullahoma. And then he uh, realized that uh, it was a long drive from Birmingham 
to Tullahoma, and then he was driving through Huntsville. He said, if I could just get a station there, and he found this dog of a station owned by the Huntsville Times okay. playing classical music. <laughs> and by dog, I mean it was on the bottom of the ratings, and it was also one that was pretty affordable to buy, and sure. he bought it and turned it into number one, and then the family was off and running. And, and that was 1959 when, that, when it was bought. So all during my college years at the University of Alabama, I worked um, summers at the radio station here. And in the meantime, he, in 59, he bought one in Florida, WNUE, new radio. So we had way radio here, new radio in Florida, by radio in Calera. Uh, and, um, so three, I'm yeah, counting. Because he had sold Telehome in the meantime, okay. got a yeah. good, good profit on selling that one. Uh, so that was the stations, and, and then I graduated in 63 with a major in radio and TV. And TV, there was only one station here, and so we were going to put another one on the air. And when the ownership here uh, heard about it, uh, particularly uh, Jim Beasley of Sweet Sue Kitchens, he was the major stockholder, he said, we're not going to compete with that WAAY radio. They're going to they're be something to compete with, so let's just sell the station to them, which they did. So we bought 31 rather than put on Channel 25, okay. which later became the educational channel up here. From 63 on, I was up there as operations manager, and the station grew from a staff of 17 to the height in 1993 of 175. So you know what, Dawn, as we're uh, hearing about all of this uh, development of the family business, going into radio, going into television. And then uh, at one point he says, you know, he had 175 staff, you know, he, they greatly expanded. And you think back about the course of time that basically this, this business effort spanned uh, from the early 1920s on up to 2000 when they sold the business. And that's pretty much 85, 90% of that century that they were involved in this business. It's, it's pretty impressive. Well, to me, the, uh, of course, for obvious reasons, having spent a lot of years in broadcast radio myself, uh, he, talking about the, the things that went on in the, the top 40 uh, era, I don't think people nowadays realize that top 40 didn't always exist. Radio was still dramas and soap operas pretty much until a fella out in Oklahoma City named Todd Storrs noticed at the restaurant where he had lunch every day that people were playing the same songs over and over on the jukebox. And he said, you know what? I bet a radio station that just played the songs that people wanted to hear over and over and over again would do well. And he was right. And that was the birth of Top 40 Radio. A fellow named Gordon McClendon in Dallas wow. had a very similar idea and was doing the same thing with some of his stations, but he took it a step farther and did the same thing with news, where they would do the same news stories over and over with the 30-minute news cycle, and uh, we still see the elements of some of that today. Uh, just uh, a fun time to be in radio when uh, you had to be creative to survive. Yes, you had to improvise and uh, find a new niche in, in grabbing people's attention and keeping their their ears on your radio station or eyes on your television station. But yeah, it's it's just amazing to, to hear about how all this family uh, entered into the emerging technology and stuck with it and, and didn't let it uh, overwhelm them, you know, and they learned. And then, but not only did they make it grow on the technical side, but they also engaged in the whole, like you said, the creative and uh, finding out new ways to engage the audience and, and meet a need. What did they want to hear? And what did they want to know about? So that next part that, that I talked to MD about was just about the whole creative side of television and radio and 
boy, does he have some great stories we're about to hear about, about the promos that they did that involve uh, dropping things from buildings and uh, <laughs> tying up traffic and hiding keys to cars and Easter eggs. So you're going to really enjoy this next section. Well, there's more than just playing the right music, and that was key. Uh, my mother and uh, I helped sometimes do the record list based on Billboard and based on what WYDE in Birmingham was playing. So she used their record list they printed and put out in all the record stores um, and would come up with simply the top music, the, 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 the hottest music of the day. And in the 50s and early 60s, a lot of it was Perry Como and Doris Day. It was a mix. It was rock and roll. It was Jerry Lee Lewis, but it was also Doris Day. And uh, that was what uh, the popular or top 40 hit music was uh, in those days. And then, you know, it graduated to more rock and roll, but that's I, what we played. I didn't realize that these radio stations were publishing their playlist and they weren't in any type of fear of it being, uh, you know, copied or repeated anywhere else, I guess. Well, but the thing was, a lot of people, if you did it the best, and, and it wasn't just the music, it was our promotions, it was our contests, it was our two voice announcers on everything, just like the single anchor, and then eventually uh, co-anchor started and it was better, and everybody does co-anchor. The same, we had, we had two voices on every commercial. Other commercials were one voice, so we had excitement in it. We had one guy doing this line hard, the next guy would do that line hard. We played background music. We would cut in um, funny little voice clips into our commercials, make them interesting and unusual, kind of like the things in the Super Bowl, you know, mm -hmm. commercials that would catch people's ear. So it was more than just the right music. It was it was announcers who who always had to smile. There was a big sign over the control board that said "Smile," because you had to smile when you talked, because people could tell when you were smiling. Yeah, that's true. And that's, that's the true. sign the sound we wanted to present. So we were the upbeat sound in town, and just because someone else could play the same music on our printed record list would not make them competitive with us. And so then they would change formats and go country or easy listening or something else and leave it to us. Okay, so music was the start, but that you, it didn't stop there. It was all about delivery, uh, engaging the people. My, my, my father's... Uh, he loved P.T. Barnum, and he always quoted that, don't matter what they say about you, just spell your name correct. <laughs> and so he would do some outrageous things, <clears throat> some things that one thing was dropping dollar bills off of the, the big hotel over there, uh, and it caused gridlock in Huntsville. And the police department said, if you ever do that again, we're never going to let you do a remote or a promotion. Uh, but it, but it was in the front page of the paper, you know, WAAY radio causes gridlock in Huntsville. That's what he said, you know, it doesn't matter what you say, just give me the promotion and spell my name right. Oh, wow, that's funny, because do, doesn't that have shades of that whole scene from WKRP with the turkey yes. drop? Yes, <laughs> yeah. That's funny. There's a lot of funny stories that I've published in this book of mine uh, about that. And I've got pictures of some of these things. Uh, an Easter egg hunt, the first one we ever did together as a TV and radio station, generated such a crowd over at Bram Spring Park that it just overwhelmed. We had one little, one little microphone and a couple little speakers on a stand, and the crowd spread out for a block on either side of this wooded park, a pine park over near the stadium. And the people were spread so far away they couldn't hear the PA system. Uh -huh. And we were telling them that we're not going to start till 2 o'clock. Take it easy. Well, someone way on down the end yelled, 
go. Oh no! And okay. and with and without us doing and and they there was little kids in the front and these people were crazy because there was some eva <laughs> valuable prizes in these plastic eggs. Yes. So one worth a car. Oh wow! And next thing we know, these people are rushing and here's these little children in Easter egg dresses with their little yeah. Easter egg basket. We almost had some cool. real serious problems there. <laughs> that was in the front page of the paper. <laughs> almost causes little kids to be trampled. But we didn't cause any, and there was no lawsuits. So those are things you learn, but that's the kind of promotions to get you talk. And we brought in Santa by helicopter at Parkway City. And, uh, and just as he was landing, the wind changed direction and blew the chopper almost over the crowd. And they had to go up just in time. To yeah. save Santa? <laughs> yeah, Santa did eventually land, land at a distant place on the parking lot because, oh, wow. you know, you learn things the hard way sometimes about crowd control. Yes, wow. Talk about learning, learning how to capture a crowd, like you said, like P.T. Barnum. So this is where your dad entered into the mix and then you came along. Yeah, I learned everything. I mean, I liked it just like he did. I spent my summers with Dan Akins uh, at the time was our uh, local production manager. Now, see, a, a home office in Birmingham, where they originally were, he, have, he finally moved to Huntsville. I would go down there and, and spend summers, because I was at the university, with Dan Akins cutting promotional announcements for our uh, Huntsville and Florida and Tullahoma radio station. Now, hey, he sold WBYE around, 19, around 1959, I think. Um, Could have got a really good offer for it from the local people there in the city. So it's not involved. It's just that I learned a lot about this, and, and Dan and I tried to outdo each other on the creativity of commercials. And um, when I hired commercial producers at the television station, you know, it was very important that the interview, and I could see this sense of creativity and bouncing off the wall. If I didn't see that spark, they weren't for us. And many times we'd produce commercials that the advertisers would just laugh and laugh about and say, but don't run that on the air. <laughs> and we'd have to do something different. Uh, occasionally we'd do a production that was so good, we would run it one time at midnight just so we could enter it in the advertising awards, you know, that would come up yearly, and, and it usually won. Because if it ran on the air even once, then it qualified to be entered. But the advertiser didn't want us to run it because During he thought it, it, was, it was too stupid and might put his product in a bad light. But it was okay. a great commercial. <laughs> Are there any commercials that stand out in your mind that were just you enjoyed, they were so funny, or they captured people's minds, or, or even the production process was? Well, both radio and TV, we did the treasure key hunt for a number of years. Okay. And that's where a key to a new car is hidden, somewhere in the city, oh, and you wow. give clues out to it. And, a, and you give one or two clues today, and then maybe one or two clues tomorrow, but if you want to get all the clues, you go by the sponsor who has each clue put up as they are given. So you. You know, most people will go visit the sponsor. So we, we produce a lot of store traffic uh, for that prize and a good promotion on the air. And coming up with the clues, only one or two people, either me or my mother or my father, had to know where that was because we couldn't even tell the staff where oh, that key yeah, was yes. because it was, the word would leak out, you know. Sure. Uh, but hiding the key and then, and then writing the clues was one of the, the funnier things. They were trying to make it funny. At the same time, it had to be a little helpful. And we always said it's not hidden on public, I mean on private property anywhere. It's public land because we didn't want people 
Well, that happened once too. They they tore up some people's front yards, and we had to pay to have relandscape <laughs> because a clue got them too close to people's houses. So uh -huh. we had to stress that in the future. You learn a lot of things, but through this trial and error, I'm telling you about. So, uh, but that that's as, as was as much fun the treasure key, and I I even have even done that in the last number of years at a Father's Day party. I have I have eight children, nine grandchildren, and lots of others around. So when I have a far, Father's Day party. It's a big one. Nice. So I hide a key that goes to a lock and the inside is the prize that they're going to win. And then I give clues out as where the party is going on that I've written. And I'm the only one who knows where it is. My wife doesn't know where it is. No one can help anybody until finally we get close enough and one of the, the boys finds it in the edge of the sidewalk in the grass somewhere and then, you know, and, and locate it. So it gets in your butt. It, it doesn't get out. Obviously fun days and obviously MD and the group enjoyed it, but they were wildly successful as they were doing these sorts of things. As, as I hear him talk about the, the contests and the goofy things that happened, we, we used to have an Easter egg hunt here at uh, WVOK every year. And it, just as they did in Huntsville, people would break the line 10 minutes before the thing was supposed to start. We even had a streaker one year. I, oh, wow. How do you explain that to the little kids are out there waiting to go hunt Easter? That's the Easter bunny, I guess. Yeah, nowadays in 2022, parents would sue you for therapy for their kid, maybe. Exactly. <laughs> for never, seeing that. In these litigious times, I guess they would. I, I think about, uh, you know, that's not the only thing that got thrown out of helicopters or off buildings. Uh, a station here in Birmingham actually used to do a promotion where they would go out in the field somewhere and have a helicopter hovering and throw money out. And people got injured one year, so that never happened again. I think of a station, uh, a lot of uh, local Birmingham folks may remember, that gave away a house. Oh, really? A literal house. And the poor person who won the house couldn't even afford the income tax. People don't realize if you win a $150,000 house, you've got to pay income tax on $150,000 or whatever the worth right. of Right. And, and then in some cases, property tax as well. Exactly. Maybe not so much in Alabama, well, but in other places. They couldn't afford it and they ended up having to sell the house. But I guess they netted out some money yeah, maybe, well, hopefully. Uh, in the process. <laughs> I think of a station in San Diego that did what was called the last contest. And they would never run the same promotional announcement more than once. Once. And they were giving away an island in the Pacific. They were giving away a castle in Europe. They were giving away a million dollars a year for life. Of course, they never gave away any of those things. They, they only had one prize, which was the one they ultimately gave away, which was a nice prize of some kind. But the, the promotional minds that came up with that sort of thing. Uh, you know, th this was also a time when there was a lot of technical innovation going on in the media, and you had to keep up. If you were a radio station, it switched from AM to FM, FM stereo. They tried some other things over the years that didn't work, quad sound and mm -hmm. uh, AM stereo, that sort of thing. Uh, television went from black and white to color. They went to high definition. Stations had to keep up. And when uh, MD first uh, got into that station, uh, Channel 31 in Huntsville, and they were getting a bargain, but they found out it was uh, going to be a little rougher than that because they weren't very well equipped. That's right. They started out with the bare minimum. And then uh, as he was talking to me, he was just kind of detailing, just naturally, like you mentioned, the uh, transition over from uh, black and white to color and, and uh, you know, to the uh, the system's Oh, come on. The, that you used in radio, uh, I want to say cassettes, but it's not right. No, it, it, various kinds of tape or yeah. then into digital. And, right. You know, you walk into a radio station today, it's a computer, pretty much. It is, right. And uh, yeah, it, it's very high tech. 
compared to what was started, but he started out with a bare minimum, and that is a very interesting uh, story but in you and know of what? itself. He, he kept going back to the one big thing, and that human beings and having fun doing what you're doing and encouraging them and being successful. Yeah. When we took over that station, they had one single Ampex monochrome two-inch video recorder. That was all. You could play one commercial on it because you didn't have time to spool it off, cue up another one, and play it. So you only had one commercial. You couldn't splice them. You couldn't edit them. It was just you played them. So you, you'd have that. Then the rest of the commercials were uh, usually a black and white slides on a slide drum, and it was a dual drum changer. So one slide's on the screen, then you'd flip to the other slide while the drum rotated. Then, then you, so you, you just saw one slide after another. Sometimes a live announcer would read the copy over the slides, okay. black and white. But then we started using tape recorders and then our spot masters, which we use at our radio stations, we put it TV. Then, of course, we just hit the play button and then let the, and, and then we learned how what trip cues were and the trip cue would sit there and change the slide instead of someone having to read the copy and push the button at each slide change. Okay. So that goes from very, very just manual, manual to, to automation. Then we got color film. With color film, we now could run color movie film, 16 millimeter, and we could run color slides. So that was the first color that we had. Uh, we later got a, a color video recorder, we, and we learned the hard way that we need to have two. So you could play a master on one, and put it over here, and then play another one, and put it over here, and make up a master with three or four commercials on it to run in one of your breaks, because more and more people wanted videotape, and they wanted color, and so, that was the graduation into color, and then after that we went to, from color film for the news, we had to process on a much bigger processor. It, it, was, it was faster, but it, was, it, it had so many tight, filled a wall full of color development chemicals that had to be mixed up daily. And then the oh, disposed wow. of, that was a big problem. Too. Oh yeah. Uh, then going to, to electronic, ENG, electronic news gathering, which was our first camera that probably weighed 45 pounds that went on your shoulder, yes. a big video recorder that slung over here, and then the belt for the camera that held the batteries over here. It, yeah. it was all a big man could do. And right, that, that's for getting a... Going out and covering Going out in the video. field, yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah that, that person had to be a Then Then came person. microwave and live, and you could do live, but it had took a long time to set up, nothing like the little trucks that just pull up today, shoot to the satellite and do it. Right, And of right. course, the newer stuff just is mind-boggling. You don't use satellites. You, you, you put a, something in your own car and take a little camera out, and you're, you're broadcasting right. back to the station. <laughs> I know. <laughs> by, by way of the internet or Wi-Fi. I know. It is amazing how it has come around full circle in some ways on the technical end. I mean, it, especially the story of, uh, what was it, Mrs. Bell broadcasting from her from her back room. Yeah. And then here we are in the age of COVID where we've got people, news reporters the same thing, in, in right. their room doing it through Zoom. It, it's kind of come around full circle in yeah, a lot it of really ways. Is. It, yeah. it sure is, yeah. As far as just the, the homeyness almost uh, that we're now back to we're outside of the big high-tech studios. Now we're doing it from our homes, like from the beginning. But anyways, there's a lot that has changed in, in the technical sense in radio and television um, that, that has eased some things up and all of that. But what are some things that you see on the level of appealing to people or leading people 
that hasn't changed that you've that you've observed stay the same throughout all you of mean this. You mean like like having a large audience? Is that what you're thinking? Of when yeah. You or ask or that? what's the common core that you can always count on hitting that people are going to be interested in, and and that you can you can ensure that they're, they're well, going to be as as the networks, uh, you know, they kind of run their own show. They're going to put on what they want to put on. Uh, I think it's uh, I think I don't think as highly of situation comedies as I did a long time ago. I, I think. I think Laverne and Shirley were a little better written, even though there was a little slapstick to it, too. Um, but what I think for local stations is local news. That's the one thing you can always do better. You can cover it better. No one can cover it like a local station can, and that's what people come to. There's yeah. so much diversity with net, national network news available from a variety of sources, including the Internet and on your computer at your office. Right, right. That the one thing you can't get is a good lot of local news that's happening. Uh, a little investigative reporting, uh, a little bit of um, of the hard news. Uh, hard news, you know, if it bleeds, it leads, and and that's that's unfortunately just the way it usually is. Which means it's not going to be the best of stories, but you save a good, warm kicker story for the end. Mm -hmm. You want to leave people feeling good at the end of your newscast. So all of that combination, it, and it takes a very good news director and a very good support from the station management and the news department to do this kind of show and have the kind of personnel that deliver it in such a way that they are friendly mm -hmm. and believable and warm mm -hmm. and all of these things while they're reading a teleprompter script. Uh, and of course the interchanges, you know, how they do it, you don't, they don't get silly talking to each other, but at the same time they've got to be seen friendly to each other. And a comment they make kind of applies to everyone. Right. Uh, hopefully it makes you feel, oh, that was nice, you know, what they, what they comment on. So it just takes looking to, into every one of those details to have a number one local news show. And if you're number one in local news, you're likely to be number one in your network. Mm -hmm. The number one news station is going to be the number one station, period. Because the image carries right onto the network. Yeah, yeah, so true. Um, when Ted Turner out of Atlanta started up this whole 24-7 news cycle and the cable TV how old were you, where were you, and what were your thoughts? I was uh, probably in my 20s, and um, we didn't have cable except um, um, uh, in Huntsville after I came to live here, and, not, and, and uh, they weren't added until later in the cable age, like probably mm, the late 60s, maybe early 70s. I'm not even sure when, when his channel went I think on. his was the 80s? Well, the, the first thing was he was a superstation, and they were picking it up off the air by satellite and redistributing it. It wasn't it wasn't as much of a, of a cable channel as we think about cable channels now. Okay. And um, that was WTBS. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and then I think out of that he launched uh, CNN when cable carriage got wide enough that his station as a superstation was on enough cable systems being carried by microwave as the satellites got more numerous and, and, and the time got less expensive and prohibitive. Uh, when satellites were first up, it, it, was, it cost an arm and a leg and only the network could afford a five minute window of satellite time. Mm -hmm. and, and so what was your thought when you realized, okay, this guy's headed for a 24-7 news <laughs> cycle. Uh, is this a good thing, a bad thing for, for uh, America? Oh, it had to be a good thing. Because it was it was news when you want it, not news when they want to give it to you at five, six, and ten. Okay. And I, I knew that was going to compete with local station. And further, 
watered down the importance of, of the local stations. Right. But if they ran national news, you'd already seen it on CNN. So that's, again, why the local news is so important, you see. You know, as uh, MD's talking about all the technology that he and his family and his employees managed and, and expanded to, so much has changed in the past how many decades do we cover here, Don? 70? Yep. Or so? Uh, I'm, math's not my forte, but... 70 years, seven decades, yeah. Yeah. So we've, we've covered so much has happened in that time, but yet no, some things have never changed, and they always stay the same. And that's the human element, who your audience is, what they need, what they want to hear. And, you know, as he mentioned in that last clip, the, the local news is the driver because... People want to know what's happening in their local area, what's happening in their community, and what's going on. And it's also amazing to me that he saw, if he was going to manage a group of people, and especially a growing staff at a, a television station, he had to improve his own skills and how to help people succeed. Yes, because as they're bringing on more staff, you know, kind of like he refers to PT Barnum at some point in this interview, kind of like a ringmaster, you know, playing all the parts. You've got to learn how to um, lead them. And so that was the other thing that uh, I kind of spr uh, springboard off of when I was talking to him is how do you, as you're growing with the tech and as you're growing with the creativity, how do you manage all these moving parts of people and personalities and uh, different needs and, and avenues of, that they're entering in with this whole business? Uh, how do you manage them and how do you get them to all on board with the goals of your of your business. So that was the uh, next area that we talked about. And he, and he admitted right off from the, right from the start, I didn't know what I was doing, but I at least went and learned. And that, that is the key right there. I knew right out of college, I didn't have leadership training and I was not a very good manager. I knew that. I sensed it. I took the Dale Carnegie course. I learned a lot about bringing people around to your way of thinking. And a manager who can do that with employees is so much better imagined than one just orders them to do things and right. says you have to do that and, and then penalize them if they if they mess up. I mean, and things like that. It, so the Dale Carnegie opened my eyes. Then I heard about this other course called the Management uh, Leadership Training course. I took that course. I liked it. I took it again as a graduate student. And then they asked me to become a an instructor because there was none in Huntsville, only one in Birmingham. So I became an instructor. And for the next 18 years, I taught middle managers all across the North Alabama and a lot of the Birmingham area, how to be better managers. And it would take me a long time to tell you all the ways you do it. But uh, still, every time I would conduct the course, it was seven weeks, one night a week for seven weeks, I would practice on my managers at the TV station. I had seven, a chief engineer, a sales manager, a production manager, a news director. So I had seven, traffic manager, and they would be in there and I would practice on them practice would, would using the know, same. Would they know that what sure. you're doing? They okay. said, well, MD is teaching the management seminars. <laughs> I said, that's right. But I want you to do this with your people now. And so I was instructing them on how to be better managers, and they did become better managers. And the staff that worked under them became more motivated. They enjoyed their work more. They understood that we want to help them succeed. We want to do everything we can to make them successful. Because if you make the people that work for you successful, you're successful. Right. How, how better to define you're being a successful manager? And that attitude is what motivates people, makes them part of a team feeling. And when you can get people motivated and all pulling together, you almost can't lose.
Yeah, that's that's great advice. It, it's all about getting them to have buy-in into the to to the goals and the yeah. purpose of what. And we doing. gave rewards. We gave bonuses. We gave employee of the month. We did all the kind of things that recognize good work when it's yeah. being done. Uh, it, you know, criticize in private and uh, and uh, and. Uh, compliment in public. So we'd have monthly meetings and compliment good work people did and the goals they achieved and things they'd met, uh, doing things right. And if we had to criticize, it was always a one-on-one -on -one, and you still do it in the, in the most pleasant way you possibly can, but just say, you're going to have to do better. <laughs> Can't do that again. <laughs> yeah, so you mentioned that with your television station, there was as many as 17 or more. There was 17 when we bought the place in 63, and we had a high of 175 working for us in 93. Now, things began to get a little tighter. Uh, the networks began tightening up on what they would pay affiliates, and in 2000, uh, uh, when I sold the station, the networks were in the process of making affiliates pay for their network affiliation, the opposite of what it had been for years before that. Oh. And now affiliates pay a lot to the network. But affiliates get some money from the cable companies called, called the retransmission fee, and the networks get a little bit of the retransmission fee for the cable companies. So the whole business has changed around. Uh -huh. But it was going, it was getting tighter in, in the late 90s, and that's where I had to trim the staff back to about 150 uh, where it was when I sold the station in 1999. Because we'd branched off into wedding, wedding photography. We'd branched off into all sorts of places. But we just wanted to try new ways of, of finding areas for profit. And not all of them were profit, but they were worth trying. At, at some point when you're making these attempt, you know, these discoveries, attempts at, at finding new ways of profit, what, what were some, some clues to you like, okay, we've gone down the wrong road or we've done, we made a good decision? At what point is that? Well, is the that biggest, the biggest mistake was the wedding, the wedding photography department. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we just thought, well, we know how to. We have we we have great photographers and we have good equipment. We can make the best wedding. But the thing was always Father Jim that had his home video camera that would do it for him, you know. And and because of money, it's like, well, you know, he gets it. Yes, and, yeah, uh, right. It just people did that. They, they, they want still photographers. They still will pay a commercial still photographer. But even that has been uh, replaced by so many good photographers with their own digital gear these days that do it. Uh, that was a that was a big mistake. And and we had three people. We had a a, a, a producer. And we had a cameraman. And we had uh, a, a sound and something else. It was a three person okay. department. And paying that personnel. And then we after a year we were not generating anything like what those three people were costing us or the gear that they were using. Right. And we, so eventually we'd probably absorb them into news or something like that. You know, Andre, I think that the key here is he was always willing to change. He was willing to go out and do whatever it took to learn to do. As things changed, he changed with the times, and that speaks volumes about the kind of fellow. And as I was mentioning to you, I've actually met, I know MD, by the way, personally, uh, I've met some of the folks that work for him, and they all absolutely loved him and loved him as a boss and still do today, even though he's not the boss anymore. Yeah, it's very clear that he understood from the beginning, this is, you cannot be dictatorial. You cannot be telling people what to do. You have to get them on board with, on, on your boat, so to speak. You have to get them on with you and, and uh, rowing in the right direction, and they're all being part. So, he, he seems like a wonderful boss to work for. And as you might figure, if you've watched carefully and listened, uh, you think, okay, he retired, he slowed down, he doesn't do anything anymore. 
Not the case. No, I was blown away, Don. You know, at, at, during this interview, at some points he slipped out some of the things he was doing, and then it just kept, uh, you know, domino effect. He was just revealing over and over again more stuff. And I was like, how could someone your age be involved in so much? I mean, you're just going to be amazed at all that he reveals in this next part. But clearly, retirement does not mean slow down or stop learning or stop loving life. He, he He's... Still full bore, full bore within that area. So, Mr. Smith, you've been in radio, television, and and internet. You've even dabbled into weddings yeah. for a little bit. Uh, is there anything else I'm missing that I? Well, I mean, we couldn't cover all the hobbies I've had, all uh, because I've, I've raised seven sons seven. and every kind of boy hobby you can think of. You know, the radio control, planes, boats, cars, uh, hiking, camping. Um, I, it just goes on and on. I'm trying to think of the thing. Oh, uh, ceramics. I've got a kill at my house and still have clay that I can make. I, the grandkids coming along love ceramics. I've been in more things in my life and enjoyed them all. Ham radio, I'm still in. I've been in and out of that since I got my license in 1961. Uh, Don Keith got his shortly after that, and we know Don. Uh, and, um, and lately, I have, I have, uh, gone back to college, I'm doing a graduate degree in popular fiction writing. Okay. And I write novels these days. Now this is nonfiction. This this is all this is all nonfiction. And I write nonfiction for the Huntsville um, uh, it's called uh, Old Huntsville magazine here in town. And okay. you write nonfiction about the old days. A lot of the stories I've told you have end up as articles in Old Huntsville, particularly some of those radio stories. Mm -hmm. People like that. And that's what she prints. But fiction and writing novels is my is my most recent thing, and I, I write at least two short stories a week, and I've written two novels I've self-published. I've written a third that I'm working on. It's my thesis novel that I'll graduate in June with an MFA in popular fiction writing, and that novel I'll be looking for a, a, a commercial publisher and book agent to publish uh, before I might self-publish it. But it's more fun in telling stories than even telling the truth sometimes. <laughs> well, you certainly are not stopping. You're not slowing down at all. I mean, no. you're, by, you're currently and writing I don't have to be. Uh, I don't have to be out, you know, hiking to, to, to write novels. I can write them on a computer anywhere. Right. Uh, used but, to be a typewriter. I, yeah. I came up on a typewriter, but... So what is this um, this latest novel that you're working on? What's the theme as far I write romance, romantic suspense. And this one is, uh, uh, the heroine is a flight instructor and uh, she's in, involved with um, a, uh, a detective for the Huntsville Police Department. Oh, it's placed and in she, Huntsville. She flies out of this little airport north of town that I don't name. It, well, it has a different name than, than the real airport. Uh, and uh, there's a drug operation involved uh, using some of the the private planes, because private airports aren't controlled like the big ones with the towers and everything. That's and you true. can fly in and out uh, kind of unregulated and unannounced, and that's perfect for drugs. And probably really is used uh, to some degree these, these days. Um, so that's how it's set, and the suspense part is the drug interaction and him trying to catch him and them trying to kill him because he's getting too close, and then her with her flight instruction and, you know, mishaps and... Uh, and uh, people that don't like you because they thought your son, uh, their son you were training almost had a wreck in the airplane. and He just ground looped a little bit. It wasn't a big thing. <laughs> uh, that's what I write about. And uh, I, my wife and I, we've been married 61 years, and we watched so many Hallmark movies and read so many 
Nora Roberts, Danielle Steele, uh -huh. Mary Higgins Clark, mysteries and romances, that we both love them. And so that's why I choose to write that. Well, I can write a heck of a science fiction or a murder mystery or an Old West. I write Old Western short stories. So with this one, was it based in, in the era, era of aviation field? Mm-hmm. What are you, I well, mean, I was a private pilot for 30 years. I flew a twin-engine Aztec uh, <laughs> with my father. We, 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 the TV station bought it. There's a picture of one that you can see right up there with it. Well, it's behind some of the other pictures up there. But uh, he, I got him into flying in 1965. Uh, he bought a single-engine Cessna, and then I started renting a twin-engine Aztec because it was... And my mother believed it was much safer to have two engines going in case one failed. You could still get to where you were going. Sure. Well, then with a single engine, and you got to look for a place to land. Oh, well, she never got to be a that. pilot, but she was a good passenger. Oh, okay. And then uh, my wife did actually solo because she didn't want to fly with me in case I had a heart attack and she didn't know how to land the plane. She soloed, and once <laughs> she could do that and land it, she quit practicing, mainly because she was she was fixing to deliver one of our sons, and she was too big to pull the control stick back to land. <laughs> Uh, but then there's more more tales about flying and the flying stories and uh, the aviation and everything that my father and I did together as well. I I just unbelievable. <laughs> I don't. I did. This just came out of the blue. Suddenly yeah. you're oh I'm a pilot yeah. too. Multi-engine instrument rated. I still have a current license today, and all I need is just to update my medical, and I'd be flying. One more thing, since you've just dabbled into all these different areas, I don't, dabble's not maybe the right word. You've explored and even conquered in a lot of ways. I immerse myself. When I have something that I'm really interested in, I just immerse myself totally in it. I want to learn as much as I can possibly learn. And that's the reason for the, uh, the MFA at Seton Hill. Uh, when I got my ham radio active again in 2012, I went on to get my extra class license, which is the highest license you can get, mm. because I wanted to know that much more about it. Build my own antennas, build my own equipment, um, and experiment with how I could do it better than the manufacturers, you know. And just, that's just the way I've been. I'm a little bit obsessive compulsive, just a little bit. I was going to ask, uh, was there some way in which you were brought up with your parents. Were they encouraged that kind of curiosity? You had a free reign to develop it, or is it just something that... Well, and see, they were creative. And, yeah. and you know, they, they did creative commercials when I was just a teenager coming along. And they were... My father loved jokes. He loved to tell stories. He told ghost stories and scared the kids to death at, at our cookouts when all the parents would get together. Uh -huh. um, Half of the, the parents would not let their little children listen to my father's ghost stories. Of course, I certainly did, because yeah. he told some scary ones. I've even written a few of those. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone you care to share that you think are that stick out in your mind? You want to hear a short ghost sure. story? let's hear a ghost story. Old Huntsville published this, and it's called Old Slewfoot. And here's, here's my father telling the story. He said, when I was a young man, and I was going from Hollywood where... I lived over in the Mountain Brook where Kirby, that's, that's my mother, lived. He said, I would have to go, and the shortest way was through the Homewood Cemetery. And I would go through the Homewood Cemetery, but he said, I had been warned about old Slewfoot. And he said, one night I was going through, and it was very, very dark, coming back from a date at your, uh, at your mother's house. And this, we tell this to all the kids. And he said, and then I heard that noise. And old Slewfoot was dragging his foot, coming up behind me. And I, I looked around, and I couldn't see anything. And I thought I'd better walk a little faster. 
And then I heard it again, pss, pss, as his foot was dragging up. And then he said, and, and just when I thought I might make it, he grabbed me and I never got away. <laughs> That's how the stories he would tell the little kid and okay. scare the bejesus out of him when he would raise his voice like that. Old Slufa. All right. That's great. <laughs> and he, I mean, we could picture this, this shadowy creature dragging a foot behind him, you know, like, like, like the hunchback of Notre Dame yes. or something like that. You know? Yeah. And in the dark of night and, and mysterious and shadowy and, and, and maybe teeth that could shred you like alien, you know. In yeah, the alien yeah, movies. yeah. So, yeah, he, he had an imagination. That's where I get my imagination from. So it just just kind of carried over, and, and then you've expanded on it in, in a great way. Well, and it's good, it's good for broadcasting. I mean, you know, when you have fun doing things, people understand you're enjoying it. When your anchors are having fun and they enjoy what they're doing, when the commercials you, you make are, have, have, have some fun to them, you know. And, and one of our sponsors... Uh, and that was, uh, I'm trying to think of the mattress company on University Drive. Um, but he used to do the most outrageous commercials, jumping up and down on his mattresses and just doing outrageous things and, and costumed and things. And, and uh, people would say, Doesn't, don't you think that kind of hurts your business? And he'd say, if it smells, it sells. That was his <laughs> motto. Similar to H.T. Barnum, you know, about just spell my name right. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to name any names. I, I probably could, but I think I'm just going to let that lie. Yeah. But he, he prided himself on the most outrageous commercials. And there's still a few that you'll see today in markets that are pretty outrageous. But, you know, they're worried more about you knowing their name and knowing the, their location whenever you think about buying furniture real cheap than... Then, and then there's others that have, have uh, sell very expensive furniture and have a very prestigious name. It's just the different ways you market and yes. you sell your merchandise. Right. Yep. So you'll, you'll live in, some people will live in other people's brains for the rest of their lives just because of the ads. And, you probably have a few that you will never yeah, forget, right. too. <laughs> whether, whether you like them or not. Well, thank you so much for, for sitting down and, and talking with us about this. Well, you can probably tell by my smile, it's been my pleasure. I mean, you get me talking on the things I love, and I, I can just go on and on about it, but I've, been, I've enjoyed it. See what I mean about being a great storyteller? Yes. He is a great storyteller. At, at his core, that's all. That is definitely what he does at his core. And certainly one of the keys to his success for a long period of time. He's obviously proud of his family and everything that they've been able to do and accomplish. And a very important cog in uh, media history in the state of Alabama, yes. M.D. Smith. You know, I asked him while we were talking if he was M.D. Smith the fourth or the third, and he clarified he's the fourth. And there's an M.D. Smith five and an M.D. Smith six. So I don't know that we're going to uh, lose any MDs in the, in the future. We've got, who knows what lies ahead with them. Well, th these are exactly the kind of stories and storytellers we want to introduce you to on This Alabama Life. Uh, it, the best way to get word out about it, if you enjoy what we're doing, first of all, go to any place where you uh, get your podcasts and take a look at the ones we have in the can already that we're very proud of, some very interesting and fascinating and inspiring people. And, uh, Leave a like, subscribe if you would like to. You can find the This Alabama Life on the 1819 News webpage, which is 1819news.com. It's also available on iTunes uh, via Apple, Spotify, YouTube. You can subscribe to the YouTube channel there and see all the ones that get posted and be notified when they go up, each new one. 
Uh, just about any place you get your podcast, we're there. We're trying to stay uh, with the emerging technology just like M.D. Smith did. So. And for us old folks, sometimes it's kind of hard, but we'll do our best. <laughs> Thanks for being with us this time. I hope you enjoyed meeting M.D., and I know you'll enjoy meeting the next person coming up on This Alabama Life. <laughs>